0: Welcome, Real Life family. Thanks for joining us for Church Online this morning. And uh, today, we're going to continue in our series in Acts, and we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 19, where Luke records some uh, really interesting events. And everything that he records in this story builds up into the point where it involves really a whole city pouring out onto the streets, in what is nothing less than a, a mass riot or a mass mob. And, and all of this takes place in a city called Ephesus. And in order for us to understand a little bit about uh, what is happening in this event and everything surrounding it that Luke records here, uh, it's important that we have a little bit of background and context. So first of all, we're gonna talk about Ephesus. Ephesus is a huge city. It is uh, located in what is now modern-day Turkey on the western shore, and in ancient times when Paul and his companions were there in uh, uh, Ephesus at the time, it was uh, a a big city. In fact, it was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Um, There are estimates of its population that range and go up as high as somewhere around 500,000 people living in ancient Ephesus, which is huge. And it's it's hard to kind of get a grip on, uh, you know, like where that many people would be or what it would look like. And so to give us sort of a reference here locally in our region, that is as big as Spokane County. So if you imagine Spokane County, like all the way from Airway Heights clear over to like Green Acres and Deer Park to the north, all the way down to Spangle, like that whole region is about 500,000 people included in that entire area, all the Spokane surrounding area. And so in ancient Ephesus, a region much smaller than that county, there was somewhere around a similar number of people. And so the population density was really high. And for an ancient city, this was not common. Most ancient cities were much, much, much smaller in the the, uh, two, 3,000 was a big town. And so to have this many people was significant. Um, So, Ephesus was huge, and it shouldn't surprise you that, as you realize what a big place Ephesus is, that the architecture and some of the structures there were epic. Like There was some amazing uh, work that had been done there. In fact, one of the buildings there later went on to be known as one of the seven wonders of the world, and that building is the Artemis Temple. And there's no way to talk about Ephesus and learn about the history of this city without learning about Artemis, because Artemis is uh, the chief goddess, the chief mother goddess of the region. In fact, when when Paul and his companions were traveling and doing these missionary journeys throughout Asia and Macedonia and surrounding regions, and the um, Artemis was the main goddess like throughout the entire not just the region around Ephesus but all of the really known world at the time she was worshipped so Artemis was a big big deal and um, she was known as a goddess of uh, hunting and fertility she also was known as a protector of women and that's kind of a big deal because in the ancient world Uh, it was said that only about um, one of every two, so like every other um, mom, uh, died in childbirth. And so that was a big deal. And then beyond that, only about half of the children lived past the age of five. So people would come to worship uh, Artemis, this goddess, and they would look for uh, protection or favor in the area of childbirth or protection for their young children, particularly in those first few years, and they would make these great sacrifices. And the thing that Artemis was really known for was the festivals that were involved in worshiping her. And around the known world at the time, it was common that there might be one or two or maybe quarterly uh, seasonal festivals. But in Ephesus, Uh, it was said that there might have been a festival like this as often as every couple weeks because Ephesus was known as the center of the world for Artemis worship. And so what would happen is they would go to the temple. All of these crowds of people would go to the Artemis temple. They would take this huge colossal statue uh, and they would carry it out in front of them in, in like a big parade. And then they would travel through the city streets, and and the priests would come on board in in the front wearing white. And then all of these people would fall in behind and and follow them around. And it would just become this great big um, kind of pagan parade and festival that would end up back at the Artemis Temple. And as they returned to the Artemis Temple, they would make sacrifices. And so... Once they get back there, it was understood that the only thing that you could offer Artemis, this goddess of fertility, that would bring favor to your family, particularly that you already had, was to make quite a sacrifice. and It was a sacrifice that involved um, men um, giving up their manhood. And I don't say have to say that in an age-appropriate way for all audiences, but you get the idea. And so the priests that worshipped her would become eunuchs as a result of this. And so um, they would make these sacrifices. It was also known that men from the community at large would make these sacrifices. And when they were done castrating themselves, they would put the results uh, on the altar as an offering to this goddess Artemis to bless their family and protect and provide for their family. And so it was a pretty bizarre um, requirement of worship uh, for this goddess uh, Artemis. And so it, it it was graphic. It was bloody. They often did it even with animals and would frequently do it with bulls. And so it was, it was quite uh, an ordeal. And so you got to ask yourselves why. Like why Why would anybody do this? For us in the modern world, currently, every guy watching this is cringing and thinking like, oh, that sounds awful. Like, why in the world would anybody do this? And you got to understand they lived in a different time and a different culture. And it was normal for them to think of this pantheon of gods, these variety of gods that they worshipped. And there was always a picture um, or an idea of, of this separation or enmity between the gods and the people. The, the gods were always portrayed as angry and mad at the people and somehow punishing them, and the people were always trying to win the favor of the gods. The idea here was that the gods are angry at you, and in order to make the gods happy or please the gods, you had to make these great sacrifices to them. And so you would know that the gods were angry with you if things were not working in your life, if things weren't going well for you, if you were poor or... Um, could barely have enough food to survive, it was because the gods were angry at you. You had done something wrong, and you needed to somehow appease them. If you were a, a mom who couldn't get pregnant, it was because the gods were angry with you or were punishing you, and so you needed to make these great sacrifices. If you had lost a young baby or a young child in the toddler stage, it was because the gods were angry at you. And so that there was this premise that permeated the culture that you were trying to do everything you could to appease these gods that were displeased or angry with you. And so it would drive people to do what are seemingly unthinkable things in the world that we live in. And so there was a lot of temples built to worship Artemis throughout the ancient world, way, way, way beyond Ephesus, all throughout Asia Minor, clear as far as France and the other direct, like all around the known world at the time, there's been evidence of temples built to worship Artemis. The one that you're gonna see right now is uh, one I was able to go to a couple summers ago in uh, ancient Smyrna. And this temple in ancient Smyrna was uh, the ruins of a temple built to worship Artemis. And it's really hard to portray or pass on to you in photographs or pictures Just how grand and um, amazing the scale is of the construction that they undertook to worship this goddess. The one in Smyrna here, you see one of the pictures has Aaron's den next to a column. That's a a column that's six feet wide in diameter of solid granite carved in sections and stacked. And this temple, the ruins that you see uh, of the temple here in Smyrna, this temple to Artemis in Smyrna is tiny compared to the temple that was uh, built for her in Ephesus because Ephesus was the center for uh, Artemis worship. And so as a result, they had a huge temple there. And it, to say it was a huge temple is, is totally an understatement. It was actually one of the largest temples ever built to any god in the ancient world. And it, it went down in history as one of the seven wonders of the world, this particular structure. Um, the, the temple to Artemis was epic in every way, in every proportion, in every scale. For example, it was 180 feet wide, it was over 370 feet long. Um, the massive columns that supported the roof structure, there was two rows of columns all the way around the perimeter of the building. They're six foot in diameter and they're six stories tall, over 60 feet of solid marble. And, and the entire facility was carved from marble. And the, the columns themselves were adorned with silver and gold plating and every uh, base of every column was completely carved out in a relief carving that created different scenes on every column that were dedicated to the worship of the goddess Artemis. And so this temple was grand beyond measure. And so for a lot of people, when I rattle off dimensions like 180 feet wide and 370 feet long and 60 foot tall columns, some people who... uh, can put all those numbers together and kind of conjure up an image, you're like, oh man, I understand how big that is. That's big. For a lot of people, you're like, ah, sure, it sounds big. To give you an idea, a lot of people are familiar with the Parthenon in Greece. And if you've ever been in Nashville, Tennessee, they actually have a a real life-size replica in downtown Nashville of the Greek Parthenon. So to give you an idea, that Greek Parthenon, you could turn sideways and build three of them inside the Artemis temple and maybe some of you have been to Washington, D.C., and you've seen the White House. Again, to give you a reference, you could take and put two White Houses side by side inside the Artemis Temple with room to spare. And so it was huge. It was epic. It was grand beyond comprehension. It was the likes of something that people had never even seen, and it took uh, hundreds of years to complete. And so I share all of that background to help you understand the significance of what Paul was up against in this culture. I mean, you see, here Paul is, this one man with a, a small number of disciples, and he's in a place like Ephesus. And he's teaching that there really is only one God, right? And he's, he's talking about the idea that that gods that are worshipped, who are carved from marble or stone or clay, are not really gods at all. Instead, he's saying that that there is a true God, and he doesn't reside in stone. He isn't worshipped with idols, and he's he's trying to persuade the Jews that the Messiah of the scriptures was indeed Jesus, and to show them through testimony and examples and teaching of how Jesus really did fulfill the scriptures that they had known so well. And and simultaneously, at the same time, he's trying to persuade and convince these hundreds of thousands of Artemis worshipers that, that there is a different God than the one they've known and grown up to follow and worship, that there is actually a good God. And, and he's trying to help them understand that there is a God who is rich in mercy and, and he has a great love for people. And you see, this isn't something that the people were familiar with. This wasn't a message that they could understand at first glance because they, they didn't understand what it would have been like to have a God who loved them, to have a God who was for them and not against them and not angry at them. And it just seemed countercultural this message that Paul was preaching. And I think sometimes in our culture today, we can sit here and think as Christians, like we live in this times where it's so difficult to evangelize. It's so difficult to share our faith because people just don't understand God. They don't get the message of the gospel. They, that that we live in a world where it's modern and there's science and there's evidences and there's different philosophies and and it feels like it feels like this might be a time that's harder than ever in history to share our faith and to talk about a God who loves us and sent His Son to save us. And I think it's important that we look back at these stories and we look to the um, the leaders of our faith like Paul who pioneered sharing the gospel in hard cultures, who pioneered sharing the good news about a good God who is for you and loves you in a world that had no idea how to receive that message. And so these are some of the circumstances and the things that Paul was up against. This is the world Paul was ministering to and witnessing to in Ephesus. And so that's some backdrop to help us dive into the story this morning. So we're going to jump into the book of Acts. We're going to be looking in uh, chapter 19 this morning and kind of camping out in a variety of passages there. So 19, we're going to start in verse 23. If you've got your Bible and want to follow along or it's going to be up on the screen. And uh, let's take a look starting in verse 23. It goes like this. Uh, Acts 19:23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, uh, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He had called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. And there's a danger that not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So here we see this guy Demetrius. We meet Demetrius, this character, for the first time. And we can know that Demetrius was probably a pretty influential guy, a pretty wealthy guy. Um, most idols were uh, of the time in the ancient world were carved of st- of little chunks of stone or clay or wood. And here we've got a guy who is a silversmith. and so he's using a, a metal that's highly valued and he's making shrines or like little um, things to put the actual idols in to be worshipped in. And and so we can assume that he was probably pretty well respected and had influence in his trade. And he gathers together other like-minded tradesmen. And it's kind of interesting. Some things that stick out to me in this passage, as he's pointing some things out, is here you've got Demetrius who says, "Hey, we've all heard about this Paul guy. Look at what he's doing in Ephesus. In fact, his reputation precedes him all around the uh, all throughout Asia. He's been persuading people." that gods made by human hands aren't really gods at all. And so one of the things we can learn is that here you've got Paul, this one guy who seemingly is a a tiny voice among a city of hundreds of thousands, travelers coming in from every direction, stories from all the, the known ends of the world, all these different people. And somehow all of the tradesmen and craftsmen have heard about Paul. Tells you a little bit of about his level of influence and the power of his message and his testimony that it had carried even to them. And so, what they're concerned about is that they're going to lose their trade, right? They're they're worried that if if Paul discredits the goddess Artemis as not really a god, then they would have nothing to sell. And so, I like how he sort of spins it that uh, well, we're really concerned. Well, what if the what if the temple of Artemis was discredited or what if artemis herself wasn't worshiped anymore oh how horrible that would be like they're really concerned for the for the goddess what they're really concerned about is like our sales would dry up right like if nobody worships her anymore there's we're not selling idols and so here we see demetrius he gathers together all of these uh these guys these other vendors and so they're on a street in ephesus called harbor street and um It's a real original name because it's a great big, huge, long street that goes from the harbor uh, that goes inland straight all the way in past the Agora to the city center right to the theater in Ephesus. And all along Harbor Street, uh, it was lined with booths, almost like a modern day flea market, if you will, with these um, booths and, and sales vendors all along there. And, and a couple summers ago, I got the chance to walk this uh, most of this street to, to literally walk down Harbor Street on the exact same rocks, the, the same cobblestone, the, the, to look inside the, the remnants of the same booths where maybe this Demetrius guy worked, where for sure, without a doubt, Paul walked down this very same road. And so this would have been the street where Demetrius um, riled up his fellow workers. And and then they, in turn, riled up more of their people around them until there was quite a fuss going on. And so I want to pick the story back up in uh, Acts 19, verse 28. It goes like this. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar, and the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine that, deafening tens of thousands of people crowded in with this amphitheater style stone theater. Screaming, chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Not even sure why they're there or what all the ruckus is about, right? So here they are at the end of Harbor Street. The theater is there. That theater, I, I've stood in that theater. I've climbed those chairs. You hear how the sound carries and, and bounces off of the stone and the the amphitheater style of it. And that theater itself there in Ephesus was designed to seat uh, 25,000 plus people. And so the theater is jam-packed full. The floor is full. The seats are full. It's crowded. Bumper to bumper people, well over 25,000. The streets, Harbor Street, the Agora, hundreds of thousands of people are catching fire. This like movement, this riot, like what's going on? We've got to see. We don't even know what we're going for, but surely if everybody's this excited, it must be good, right? It probably felt a little bit like college game day last year on on the WSU campus, here you've got Martin Stadium seats, 35,000 ish people. Imagine Martin Stadium packed, bumper to bumper, the field covered, all the streets around campus just crowded with people, just face to back, just crammed in, all yelling and chanting. Like you could get a feel for what that might have been like. Claustrophobic, crazy, a little bit dangerous. And if you ever wondered what Paul's courage level was like. This is a scene you can look to. Because in the midst of all this, this crazy mob, hours and hours of chanting and yelling to, to how great Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians is, what does Paul want to do in the midst of this? In the middle of all that, Paul is trying to make his way into the theater because he wants to address the crowd. Could you imagine could you imagine Paul going in there in in the middle of this crowd with tens of thousands of people getting their attention and saying, oh, by the way, the reason everybody is in a riot, the the reason the whole city is in an uproar and all of this chaos is going on. Yeah, I'm the reason for that. Let me tell you guys a story. Can you imagine how well that would have went over? Thankfully, his friends wouldn't let him go in, right? He had people around him that had his back even when his boldness and courage might have been unwise and so they kept him from going into the theater and the Jews tried to push forward a guy named Alexander you see the the Jews were trying to make a defense they were trying to make sure that the gentiles there the Greeks knew that they were not on board with these worshipers of the way these christians right they wanted to they wanted to make sure and like they didn't want to get lumped in with Paul and his disciples, they wanted to make sure they knew, like, hey, we're not a part of that. And as a result, we don't want any of the consequences either. We don't want any of the blowback on us. And so they tried to have a guy stand up and make his case that they're not with Paul, but they wouldn't even have it. The crowd just overwhelmed them. And so this goes on for hours. And finally, the city clerk is uh, able to get their attention. And in Ephesus, the city clerk was the highest ranking city official. And so He finally is able to get control of the crowd, and I want to read with you the rest of this passage and see how this event kind of plays out in the rest of the book of Acts, or in the rest of chapter 19 here. Verse 35, it goes like this. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed the temples nor blasphemed our goddess, and if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges, and if there's anything further that you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So the city official is able to kind of cool the crowd down and call them back to their senses. And you got to understand, Ephesus was a free city, and which meant they were allowed to govern and rule themselves in the day-to-day operations of the city But even as a free city, they were risking breaking uh, laws that Rome had in place about large gatherings and riots that were uh, uncontrolled mobs, and it would have ended badly for them. And the clerk goes on to point out to the crowd, like... Paul hasn't said anything. He, he, Paul and his companions, they haven't done anything. They haven't damaged the Artemis temple. They haven't robbed it you know, or stolen any artifacts. They haven't said anything bad about the goddess or blasphemed her or said anything wrong about her. And so like, we're at risk here of doing something that's not right. Like you guys, if you want to bring charges against them, here's the right way to do it. And so it helps us get some insights into what Paul's message would have been leading up to that point, to help us understand what Paul would have been talking about, like what, what was his focus that the city clerk could say about him. He hasn't done anything to harm the temple or blaspheme or say anything about Artemis. You see, Paul wasn't uh, concerned so much with um, disproving Artemis as he was with preaching the gospel and teaching about Jesus Christ and, and teaching about the kingdom of God. You see, he showed people the scriptures and he pointed to them how Jesus actually fulfilled the prophecies and the teachings from God's word. And and as he taught about Jesus and he taught about the kingdom of God, people were faced with a choice. They could continue to worship this goddess Artemis. uh, And she required these great sacrifices, right? They They could live continually in fear of the gods who were angry at them or needed to be appeased or paid off or um, quiet their temper somehow with some great sacrifice. They could continue to go to the priests who would burden them with these high fees to even worship at the temple. Or they could choose to believe in the God that Paul preached about, a God which saved you by your faith, he said, Uh, not by your sacrifices, not by any amount of work or effort or anything that you could do. This God that Paul preached saved people by their faith in him, not by their sacrifice to him. And, and, And Paul went on to talk about this God as a God that would count you as family. And Paul later wrote to these Christians in Ephesus, and he was writing to people that were uh, Gentiles and pagans and Artemis worshipers that had chosen to put their faith and trust in Christ. And, and here's what he wrote to them. I want to read something to you from Ephesians 2.19, and I want to help you understand like, the message that Paul uh, was presenting. In Ephesians 2.19, it goes like this. So now you gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You could you could even rewrite that like this or or hear it like this. So now you former Artemis worshipers. So now you former Artemis worshipers are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Could you imagine growing up in a culture where the gods were angry at you and demanded great sacrifices of you, living in a community where you knew of people, probably in your own family, who had castrated or emasculated themselves in an effort to worship and receive um, blessing from the gods. It had cost them their very manhood to be told by Paul that this god counts you as a member of his family. He goes on in verse 20. He says, "...together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit." So, in contrast to Artemis, this goddess who requires these great sacrifices, especially if you wanted a family or your family to be blessed, and she was a goddess who was worshipped in this grand temple, Paul tells them that they're going to be members of God's family, and beyond that, that together with the other believers, including him, like together, they're actually going to be the very temple of God, the place where God's spirit lives. Now, if you were a citizen of Ephesus and and you grew up in the culture in the city where the the most epic, world-renowned, awe-inspiring structure to worship a God that that had ever been built, this temple to Artemis, these 60-foot columns of marble and silver and gold adornments and And the size and the scale of it was beyond anything anybody had ever seen. And that was where a God was worshipped. And now Paul says, no, as you put your faith in Jesus, you, along with each and every one of us, now we together are being built up. We, the people, are being built up by God as his temple. Like in us, us Christians, us believers, God's spirit will rest and we are the temple. And so for a person in Ephesus to think of themselves as as the temple of God, it would have been to conjure up images of the grandeur and the scale and the amazingness of the temple to Artemis and to think like, man, this God thinks that about me. When he sees me, he's in awe. When, when people would see me, they, they would think of me with this, this wonder and amazement that people look at the temple of Artemis with. That's what it meant to these people to imagine themselves in that context, to be God's temple. And so I think we can read about events like this in the Bible, and I think it's easy for us now in our modern world to kind of look back at people at that time with a little bit of judgment, criticism, kind of think of them as they were maybe somehow less intelligent back then, right? Maybe less wise, um, less refined maybe than we are today. But the truth is, I think we're probably much more similar than we are different. Um, you know, when you think about it, like, when was the last time you did this, or maybe you knew somebody, have witnessed somebody that's done this, like, when's the last time you jumped on a a bandwagon where you sided with the crowd, right, and there was some issue that seemed really, really important, it was a really big deal, and you just sort of jumped on board and shared other people's ideas and regurgitated things you'd heard and said things you'd heard other people say, even though you didn't really know what they meant or fully understand them, like, surely nobody's doing that nowadays, right, like, only a hundred times a day on Facebook do people jump on some new bandwagon with all of the stuff going on around COVID and conspiracy theories and whether or not these things are real and what's going on with politics. like There's so much that people are just quick to flood the streets, jump on board with the popular opinion of the day. And how about idols? Like We'd like to think that we're far removed from a place like Ephesus where People are so naive that they could buy carved statues of little idols and, 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 and worship a made-up goddess and, you know, and, and devote themselves to worshiping something like that. It almost sounds a little bit silly in the advanced culture that we live in nowadays, but rest assured, we absolutely live in a world that is full of idol worship, probably more so now than what the Ephesian culture experienced. Um, Idols, you got to understand, idols are people or things that you uh, devote yourself to or worship. So when you think about it, idols are people or things that you devote yourself to or worship. And friends, we live in a world full of things that can so easily become idols right? Like if I get on Facebook right after church and I say, hey, somebody shoot me out your favorite Bible study, I might get a couple of people that'll tell me some feedback and give me some ideas. But if I get on Facebook after church or tonight and I say, hey, we got a long weekend coming up. I want to binge watch a new Netflix series. Who's got some recommendations for me? I will get suggestions for days about stories of TV shows that people are fascinated with and in love with and adamantly Want me to watch? Like they don't just recommend a story or recommend a show; they they dogmatically want you to watch the show that they think you should watch, right? Like, and and that's just one example. There's there's way more to it than things like Netflix or sports or uh, other things that we sort of think about when we talk about idol worship in our modern world. Uh, it's an ongoing thing, and the things that Paul warned about back in his day are the still things that we need to be worried about when it comes to idol worship in our day. He said to the um, Colossians, he said that there are some other things that become idol worship. He said things like sexual immorality, uh, impurity, lust, um, evil desires, greed. He said all of those things can be idolatry, things that you can devote yourself to and worship. I mean, think about this. This is kind of getting a little bit close to home and a a little bit transparent and vulnerable, and I'm not asking you to answer it out loud in front of your friends or family or whoever you're watching church with, but in your own mind, like, have you or someone you know ever really devoted yourself to pursuing sex? Like, have you ever become so devoted and consumed that that was the thing you just, your life revolved around, that you had to find it, get it, you know, like, like that was what it mattered most. Um, what about uh, lust and the kind of the desires of the heart? What about greed? You were so devoted to success and getting things that that you would color outside of the lines and do all sorts of things to acquire more wealth, to acquire more stuff, and and, and so. There are all sorts of ways that we can become involved in idolatry, like devoting and worshiping people or things. And the thing that I always wonder, you know, that because I'm a little bit of a skeptic and because I naturally question things, what I wonder is like all throughout the Bible, we see all this stuff about don't worship idols, don't worship idols, don't worship idols. There's all sorts of warnings about it from Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. God is clearly concerned with our worshiping idols. And why is that? Why is it wrong? What's the big deal? Like, why can't we just be free, right? Like, we're Americans, especially. Like, why can't we just do what we want to do? Why can't we put our time and energy into chasing after whatever dream we have, right? Like, who can tell us no? And you see, the thing is, we have a God who loves us. We have a God who cares about us, and He knows where those paths lead, and when we begin to devote and worship other things and people besides Him, God knows where those things go. They they don't go to good places. When when we go down that road, it's always going to cost us. In ancient Ephesus, to worship the goddess es- uh, um, Artemis, it would cost some their manhood. It would cost many great. Price to worship at the temple. There was so much more involved in it. In our modern culture, when we worship uh, and idolize sex and greed and um, impure things, it can cost us relationships. It can cost us being near and close to the people that we love and care about the most. It can cost us finances. It can cost us grave consequences, it can also cost us things that God cares deeply about, like our good character. It can cost us the ability to to have a moral compass that can hold us to the right course. We lose track of what is really even right and wrong, and God knows that, and that's why He is so concerned with what we worship, what we um, hold up as idols, things that we're devoted to. And so Worshiping God alone gives us so much. It gives us, obviously, salvation comes as we worship God and God alone. And if there's so much more to it than just salvation. It gives us belonging, like Paul talked to the Ephesians. He said that it, as you worship God and God alone, you belong, and He counts you as family. It gives you God's spirit, where He's your counselor your helper, like your um, hold you back from going into a crazy mob when you need a pause, right? Like like God's spirit is your guide and helper. It gives you peace and contentment come from worshiping God and God alone because you, you can come to learn and understand that you're worshiping a God and trusting a God who has things under control. He knows the future and he is a good God That wants good for us. And so it's easy to trust and have peace. A peace that scripture talks about that surpasses all understanding. You can be calm in the eye of a storm when things like Corona are going crazy and the world we live in is sort of chaotic and we don't know when we're going to be able to do this and we don't know when we're going to be able to do that and how is this going to affect the future and what's going to happen with the economy and what are going to happen with jobs and what about how's this going to impact my ability to come back to school or not go back to school or whether my kids can finish school or not finish school or what's this going to do to my retirement plan or like all of this stuff in the midst of all that, when there's all this chaos going on around us, like the chaos going around Paul in the theater in Ephesus, just crazy people that don't even know what they're there for. When there's that kind of chaos in the world around us, you can stick out like a sore thumb as a person that has peace that surpasses all understanding because that comes from worshiping a God who has things under control. And I think now more than ever, is a time for us to seek that kind of peace. To really do a gut check and and ask ourselves, what and who are we worshiping? Have we let idols slip in? We've been weeks and weeks and weeks away now from church and worshiping together, and we notice that the online attendance of uh, people going to church and watching the sermons is going down every week. Like, it's just natural. People are getting less engaged. And as a result... What else are you putting in its place? How is your heart? What are you finding yourself devoted to? And so I want to wrap up this week by just letting us ask that question. And I'd like to challenge you to take some time throughout the day to to think and, and ask yourself, what are you worshiping? What are you finding yourself most devoted to? What are you thinking the most about, dwelling on the most, putting the most time and effort and energy into and if you, if you don't come back with a desire to know God better and to, to truly worship God, if that's not at the, the heart of your answer, then it's time for a gut check. It's time to make some adjustments and reprioritize some things in your life. I say that the same reason Paul said that, because we love you and we care about you and we want desperately for you to stay on track following the God that loves you and knows how this is all going to pan out. So we're going to finish up this morning with communion like we do every week. And so if you have not got your elements for communion yet, I would like you to go ahead and go grab them right now. I'm going to grab mine and then we're going to come back and take communion together before we leave today. every week we take communion together as a family and it's important for everybody to know that you don't have to be a member of our church you don't have to sign some special piece of paper if you want to celebrate the death burial and resurrection of Jesus then we would love for you to have communion with us we say to you just like Paul said to the uh, Christians in Ephesus your family God sees you as family uh, with us together and so we're so grateful to be able to get together, even though we're through screens right now and we're remote from each other, um, we are very much uh, gathering together to share in the remembering the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed for us as a family would, gathered around a table. And so this morning, that's how we finish our day. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he told his disciples that that bread represented his body which was broken for them and so as often as we get together let's take the bread in remembrance of him and in the same way after the meal he took the cup and he told them that the cup represented the new covenant which was his blood shed for the forgiveness of their sins and so as often as we get together Let's drink the cup in remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus. Join me as we pray. Father God, we just, we are so grateful for you. We thank you so much that we can pray to you and say, Father God, that we think of you as a good dad, as a, uh, the head of our family, and that we can have that imagery and, and not just imagery, but we believe that it's true that you are our good dad and that we are a part of your family, Lord. So thank you for that. Thanks for the reminders uh, through this text and this story. Help us to be bold and courageous like Paul, that we are on track to follow you no matter what, and that we uh, remain dedicated, Lord, to share your story with everybody around us, no matter what kind of a crazy thing is going on in our culture. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks. I hope you have a great Sunday and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. As always, you can catch me on Jesus Time, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. live on my Facebook or our Real Life Church Facebook. And then uh, be sure you check our website often. We'll be posting updates there and our Real Life Church Facebook page. We'll be posting updates there too as we learn a little bit more about phases and what's coming next. We'll continue to keep you informed as soon as we have information to share. So uh, thanks everybody. I will see you soon.